The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. More than 500 episodes and counting. All there for free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay? Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person and just okay, one. Okay, hey everybody, how's it going? Hello, <laughs> right. hey, how's it going? This is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I'm standing here. I have Allie Robottom on the program. She has a book out called Jello Girls. It's available now from Little Brown. It's a family history. I'm pulling it out right now. It's one of these books that's a little bit hard to define. It's a family history. It is uh, a cultural history. It is a feminist excavation. It's an unflinching exploration of the inheritance and curse behind an American icon. What are you guys doing? <laughs> Get over by the microphone. Allie Robottom and I are going to be in conversation in just a moment. Now, I have with me in the uh, studio right now my daughter Evan and her two friends, Tess and Mabel, I brought them in because they're in the backyard and they're making noise and you would hear them anyway. So I thought that maybe I would invite them in. Hello, girls. How are you today? Good. Good. Are you having fun? Well, first of all, Evan, say hello. Hi. Ma what, did, what was that voice? <laughs> Ma Mabel, can you say hello? Hello. Tess. Hi. Uh, how old are you guys? Let's give people an idea of who you are. How old are you? I'm seven. I'm seven. I'm seven and a half. All right. And uh, how are you feeling about your summer? How are things going? They're great so far, Daddy. What's your... Don't talk like that. <laughs> you, sound, you, sound, uh, you sound like one of these Disney princesses. Uh, what, uh, what's your favorite book? This is a literary show. Do you guys like to read books? Yes. yes I love but you're always on your iPads. You're always on screens. You, all you want to do is watch shows. When well, are you going to read a book? Well, that's because we're seven. Yeah, we're seven. Yeah, so read a book. When I was a kid... All I did was read books. I love to read. I read books every night. I wish I had a candle. What's that? <laughs> it's an iPad that you read off of. Oh. You guys haven't heard of a Kindle? I haven't. I haven't. I have. Oh my God. Do you guys, uh, you guys don't have boyfriends yet, right? No. No. no! Wait. wait, 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 wait. That's too loud. Hang on. Oh, we did something. You just blew. You just blew out my speaker with your uh, high pitched yelling. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So no boyfriends. You you kind of like to read books, but you like to watch shows. What do you? I actually like to read books more than I like to watch shows. But you also like to play Minecraft. Yeah. And I love reading Harry Potter. Hey, guess what? What? Tomorrow's my birthday. That's I cool. Actually, yeah. the the day that this episode airs is my forty third birthday. What do you guys think of that? Um, I think that's awesome, and I don't really care about it. So. And I think you're going to be older than my dad. And I think that you're going to be happy, but we're just going to be home relaxing. So you're not going to, like, throw a party for me or, like, Probably make me cake? because I, like, live kind of far from you. Actually, Mabel, it's a little farther than you. <gasps> How dare you! All right, guys. Well, do you want to sing me happy birthday or no? Yeah. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. 
Chocolate Chicken. Happy birthday to you. Chocolate Chicken. Happy birthday. Okay, so there you have it. My uh, daughter and her friends, Tess and Mabel. I have to stop it. It's too much. It's too many decibels. You get the idea. It's my birthday. Uh, there's, you know, it's the summer too. You got to realize that when you're a parent and you know, there are kids over here all the time, every day, our house is like a daycare center. Parents don't know what to do. They don't tell you this, or at least I didn't think about it before I had kids. But when your kids are school age and then summer happens, like all of a sudden you got a lot of time that you've got to deal with your kids, figure out what to do with them. You live in a city, it's a hundred degrees. Like, what are you going to do? So they come over here. And they uh, run around and scream. My guest today is Allie Rowbottom. Her new book is called Jello Girls, available now from Little Brown. It was such a pleasure meeting her, getting a chance to uh, talk with her about her book and about Jello. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Allie Rowbottom. I tend to think that there's something about um, little girls and the desire to marry a body that's been culturally disempowered to a body that is stronger and freer, at least in theory, than yours. And then in doing so to sort of transcend the burden of the body. That makes sense. I certainly feel that way. Yeah. And and they're like, they're beautiful animals. And like, I know that uh, they have like a very small brain, (laughs) right? I mean, anatomically speaking. Yeah. But they have like great intuitive, they do emotional intelligence. Uh, so much so that they're you know oftentimes used to, uh, for therapeutic processes. And yeah, we're thinking about getting my son into like therapy. It's really it's it's an amazing um, thing to do. What, like, what do they do? Like, what are you talking? They about? they mirror behavior. So if you come at a horse with a certain energy, they will reflect it back to you. So you can, in a lot of ways, you can see yourself really clearly through the horse that you're partnered with. No wonder every horse I've ever approached has been terrified. (laughs) Getting ready to go horseback riding. I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. This thing looks big and fast. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. And they'll take advantage of you because they, they can, especially when you're so closely connected to them, like you're physically on top of them. So they can feel your energy in a way that maybe like your dog has to translate your energy through the leash. Right. But the horse is like, no, I feel you on my back. I was translating some very angry <laughs> energy at my dog this morning because she rolled around and I think it was coyote shit. I don't even like to talk about it because it might have been a human shit. Oh, yeah. There was like a t-shirt not far from the, you yeah. know, so I'm like, what? I've had that happen before. And in you're Houston. in a city. Yeah, you're in a city and it's like, people, really? Yeah. Like maybe it was a homeless person or maybe somebody just like had an accident, but it's like, <laughs> go off the trail. Like, yeah. what? like, you know, like have some respect. Where were you walking? Uh, just up in the canyon, up in, you know, the hills and, uh, trying to like burn energy, like burn energy for myself, but also for the dog. But then she rolls around on this stuff and I can't have her off leash anymore because she goes and says hello to people and she's covered in, (laughs) (laughs) and it's like, yeah, it's like dawn. I'm like, I'm like half asleep walking. Yeah. I get up really early and I'm like, really? Like I got to deal with this now. Like you just ruin the walk. You smell, I'm tethered to you. Like you think it's cool. Like the dog doesn't, that's the thing about it. The dog isn't even embarrassed. Oh no. They think it's they have fine. no shame. They have no shame. So anyway, <laughs> uh, well, that's interesting that you're working on a book about horses and that you grew up riding. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you were an were you an only child? Oh yeah. So it was you and your horse. Yeah. You were hanging out. Yeah. Uh, how many did you have? Just one or? Yeah, uh, one at a time. Um, I had like a starter horse uh, who I outgrew, and then I got a horse who I still have. Actually, he's geriatric. <laughs> well, they they live to be like what thirty five. Ish? ideally i mean that's a good that's that's, that's a good old horse yeah. yeah um my horse is 27 and i like people always ask you know well what does that mean and i say if he were to die today he would have lived a good healthy long life yeah um but he's still trucking so what's his name his name is ham ham and i like it's a name i gave him when i was a child uh his name was rambo or his barn name was rambo when i got him he was very mean, very aggressive and agitated. Why? Uh, was he abused? No, he was just isolated, I think. Um, show horses, a lot of them, not all, but tend to live sort of cloistered lives. They live inside. They don't socialize very much with other horses and horses are... I'm relating to this right now. Yeah. Maybe I'm well, a show horse. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm agitated. I'm isolated. I certainly related to it as an only child <laughs> locked in a house in rural New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, and you've had this horse your whole life. Basically, yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, with some spells of like going off to school or what do you board? Yeah, you, you I leased him out. Right. It, you know, it it was a real challenge to hang on to that horse. I mean, they're crazy expensive to keep. So there's been a lot of like farming him out to lesson programs. Like right now he's giving lessons that gives me a little bit of a discount, that kind of thing. Can he do some therapy on my son? Uh, he's kind of a dick. Oh, I yes. would be worried. <laughs> Bring him over. We'll he's... put him in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so your book is the story of your, uh, ancestry, your family and yeah. the story of Jello. Somewhat. Yeah. Uh, and it's told through a feminist lens. That is, yes, that is true. Okay. So let's talk about Jell-O and Jell-O. your family's history with it. Because uh, I was reading like the patent for Jell-O was bought by one of your ancestors. Who was it? Your grandf- great-grandfather? No, it was my great-great-great-uncle. Okay. By marriage. Okay. Um, my great-great-aunt Edith married his son, Okay. It's, it's very complicated. <laughs> sure. I try to clarify it in the book um, just by way of saying that my relationship to Jello is really through luck and through marriage. Um, but yes, yeah, so my, my great, great, great uncle by marriage, Order Woodward, bought the patent to Jello from its inventor in 1899 for $450. And then how many years later sold it for what? Sold it in 1925 for, um, $67 million. That's a, and, and in 19, what'd you say? 29, 25, 25. That's a shit ton of money. So much money. Like what's the like adjusted for inflation equivalent. I wonder, I don't know. You know, I tried to find that out while I was writing my editor wanted to ask. It's probably close to a billion dollars. So much money. Yeah. I um, mean, maybe more than a billion. Yeah. Because it's, a, I think inflation's 3% a year. I mean, I can't do the math in my head, but it's it's a, a large sum of money in any era. It would be a large yeah. sum of money right now. Totally. In 1925, pre-crash, good yeah. timing. Really good timing. Wow. And one of the most successful business deals in American history because 
$450, which is what he bought the patent for, is the equivalent to $4,000 in modern day parlance. That's like my dream. (laughs) Like, like I was reading about like, I I don't know why this is springing to mind, but I was reading about Banksy Mm -hmm. years ago and how, like when he was like sort of an art student or a young nobody, like he was trading paintings for, you know, like rent or, you know what I'm saying? He was like, here, have a painting and thanks for the pizza. You know, it's like one of those things. And somebody had like two of his paintings and then he hit it big and those paintings were worth like a fortune. That's what I want to do. Yeah. I want to buy, like, just get like a painting from a neighbor or like go to a garage sale. And I have a lot of friends who are artists and I really, I like... I'm always like, we should get something now. Yeah. yeah. Just in case. <laughs> Just in case. I believe in them. It's like, talk, talk about a weird market that makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah. Like, it's just like a certain subset of very rich people have to bless you, basically. Oh, yeah. And then create demand for your work. And then it becomes like silly season. But until yeah. that happens, you're just like selling it on Etsy or whatever. Totally. It's kind of nice that there's still... The, I, I like the idea of a, of a patron um, and a mentor. It you, is, have you ever had a good mentor? Um, yeah, totally. I don't know why I paused there. I think I can think of so many people who are really instrumental, especially because like, as a young kid, I didn't have a lot of... Like, I didn't have siblings. So it was really important to me to have like a teacher who invested in me. But I think also like personality wise, it's important to me. Because I mean, I've had teachers who were good. I've had helpful people, but I've never really had like a Yoda. Have you had like a Yoda mentor? Somebody who really took you under their wing and was like, I'm going to show you the way. No, not yet. But I would really like me too. Like I was, uh, I was texting with a friend of mine. It's like, I've been talking about this book. Uh, a cave in the snow about this uh, Buddhist nun. Yes, I've heard you talk. About yeah, it. I, t- I was talking about it with <laughs> Chelsea, uh, Chelsea Hodson on this show, and a lot of people have emailed me or texted me and been like, "What's the name of that book?" I feel like I might be overselling it, but uh, anyway, like one of the stories in that book is her talking about how she met her guru. This like is a comptroll Rinpoche, like the eighth comptroll Rinpoche or some shit like that, and this guy like shows up and she just immediately starts bawling, and like you know like had this like powerful experience and wow. like he became her guru teacher was like, I'm going to, he taught her everything. And then, uh, Ram Dass, the, you know, Richard Alpert, Ram sure. Dass, yeah. the, you know, he went to India in the sixties and met, uh, Neem Karoli Baba. Who's I love saying that name. I'm like, I mean, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> it's Neem Karoli Baba. And like, he goes, uh, he tells this story of like traveling in an SUV with another American who turned out to be this guy named Bhagavan Das who's like a musician. He's like the white guy with dreadlocks who I think has like lived in India his whole life and like makes like Indian music. Okay. Like chanting. Like <laughs> what do you call those? Like, um, I'm going to blank on the name of it. It's like a kind of like spiritual chanting. Uh, Kirtan? Kirtan. There you go. Kirtan. Kirtan. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's what it is. So anyway, Bhagavan Das and, uh, Richard Alpert go to meet Neem Karoli Baba I think Bhagavan Das knew about him and Alpert, he was like skeptical. He's like, what are we doing? And, uh, he goes and they, you know, go up into like the foothills of the Himalaya, uh, mountain range and they get out of the SUV and they walk like over a bluff into a clearing. And there's like this small group and there's like Neem Crowley Baba, like wrapped in like a blanket, <laughs> you know, 
And at first, uh, Albert is like, continues to be skeptical. He's like, I'm not going to like kiss this guy's feet or whatever. And, uh, Neem Crowley Baba's like, is that your car? And he's like, uh, yeah. And he's like, you rich? Like that kind of thing. And he's mm-hmm. like, can I have your car? And he was like, see, this guy's like, you know, he's like a charlatan. And he's yeah. starting to think all these thoughts and everybody with him starts laughing. And then like, he basically says to his attendants, he's like, go feed these guys, give these guys a meal. And then later that night, or, you know, later in that experience, uh, Neem Crowley Baba pulls Richard Alper to the side and he's like, your mother just died, didn't she? He's speaking through a translator and it turns out that his mother had just passed away and he had told nobody. He, he didn't tell Bhagavan Das. Like, and so he, shit. this is the 60s. So he starts to like get paranoid. He's like, yeah. is this some CIA <laughs> shit? <laughs> and he's been doing like lots of acid. So like his head starts to spin and he's like, her stomach got big. He's saying this in Indian. And then in English, he goes spleen and she had died of a spleen condition. And he just like looks at, he's like looking eye to eye with this guy. And he said, he just started bawling and it wasn't sad tears and it wasn't happy tears. And he's like, I just felt like I'd come to the end of a journey and I was home. Yeah. And I was like, what That's the, so f- nice. I'm like, why does this shit never happen to me? I want to <laughs> go home. I want to cry tears of something. <laughs> I want somebody to look at me and know things about me like that never yeah. happened. It's a rare experience, I guess. Yeah. But isn't that a crazy story? That is a crazy story. It sounds like a lot of work to get there, but I mean, it sounds awesome. I know, but I feel like if I went to India, I would meet the guru who's like just trying to make a buck. Yeah. There's more of those than that. Way more. Thing. And it's like, oh, will you clean the ashram for me? Like here's <laughs> That's a, part of like the here's thing. Here's a broom. Yeah. Like... <laughs> here's a broom. You could sweep up. We'll, um, we'll meet later and I'll give you the, the wisdom, but... <laughs> Um, I don't know. I just, I, like authentic experiences like that, or I think they're authentic. It's weird to just start like powerfully weeping and with somebody you don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, it suggests a certain openness that I feel like I don't have readily. I'm very guarded. Skeptical. Yeah. I mean, no, but it's weird. Like, actually I, I find that I, lean heavily on sort of like woo woo new age tenants, I guess. Like, like what? Just that like the universe will support me if I put good vibes out. Oh, this sounds so bad. Oh, no, don't no, put no. This out there. <laughs> no, but I get it as like, a, there's a reciprocity. Like if you're, if you're putting positive energy out into the world, then you would probably receive, be more likely to receive it. Right. That, that makes some sense to me. But I'm definitely not going to just start bawling in front of anyone. I'm like yeah. very careful about who I... Give it a few minutes. Yeah, should happen. <laughs> you guys can't see this who are listening right now, but there are tears starting to form in my eyes. <laughs> Most people on this show uh, at some point just start sobbing for reasons they can't explain. It could there happen. you go. <laughs> then you can't find a guru because you are one. <laughs> um, so you say you lean on woo-woo tenants. Um or like, so are you kind of an undefined spiritual person who's like yeah. agnostic, believes there's something greater, but doesn't know what it is and is comfortable not knowing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I was not raised religious. I, it just hasn't been a thing for me. Uh, and you have no pull to that? No. Nope. Are you an atheist? No. Nope. I just, um, no. Just like a, I'm just like a me. 
Just, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, and I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know. I, like, I enjoy reading Pema Chodron. Me too. Like, that works for me. Yeah. Um, I don't like dogma. No. I like uh, things you can do. Absolutely. And like, and like, com- like deep common sense. Right. And stuff that's open to everyone, I guess. I, like, just sort of like mindfulness techniques. They don't, you can, you can be mindful and be a different religion or any religion really. It's right. It's nice. It's nice. And so it's just chill. <laughs> Everybody just needs to fucking relax. Um, okay. So you come from this family where, uh, Jello has visited upon it enormous wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that, and I, I know that like, you know, uh, generational wealth can mess people up. Uh, and it doesn't always last as long as you think it might. No. It's easy. It's, it's amazing how easy it is to squander a fortune because I imagine it. Like, it's like, wow, if you had like $100 million given to you, like, you'd just be set. Yeah. I always joke that I'd be like the best rich person. Like, I would just, I'd invest it or I'd put it somewhere safe. Yeah. I would be like fairly frugal just so that I knew that I could always have like financial freedom. I'd give a lot away. I have this whole vision. It's not hard, I feel like, to be rich. It's hard to become rich. Yeah. It can be hard to stay rich, but it's not hard just to be rich. Just like passive income. Yeah. All you got to do is sit there and like have a budget. Like that's privilege. Everything's easier. Right. But people screw it up. They do. Is that what happened like with the jello money? Or? Um, yeah, it's a funny thing. It, like, yes, especially early in the family's fortune. Like, um, this didn't make it into the book, but... There were several. So Ernest Woodward, who was the son of the man who bought the patent, had several brothers, and they were like millionaire playboys. Of course, uh, known the for the Jello boys. Yeah, large adult <laughs> sons. They just ran around um, having all sorts of dalliances and affairs and squandering money in the family. They actually both. Well, one of them died quite tragically, and the other died young and on his heels. What was the tragedy? He jumped or fell from the fourth story, I think, of the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Rochester. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. um, And that, you know, that death joined in this family myth of general misery and misfortune that went along with the Jell-O money. Um, Like a kind of curse? Yes, a curse. And my mother grew up you know, a child in, in, a, in and amongst this great wealth and, and heard a lot about this curse. What kind of like, is this the kind of thing where you have like a cook? Oh yeah. You have like a live in, somebody cooks your meals for oh, you, yeah. that whole thing. Yes. And this is in the Northeast. This is in uh, upstate New York, a town called Leroy. Okay. Jello is no longer manufactured in Leroy, but it was until the 19, until 1964. So did you know all of this lore about your ancestors as a child or is this stuff that you had to dig up and research? No, I did. I mean, my mom was very invested in her family history. Um, in part because I think she saw, and I talk about this a lot in the book as sort of source of her own, um, disease in the world, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, so she was very invested in it and she was always sort of telling the story either to me or for much of my life, she was writing a memoir sort of obsessively pages and pages and pages, pages, pages. 
So um, I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> just stacks. <laughs> no, I've got like 2,000 pages. Of, yeah. You know. And you could have more. Who knows? As she did. <laughs> um, so she was writing obsessively and, and trying to tell this story and ultimately just couldn't, I guess. She was sick for a lot of my childhood. With? Um, so she was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer in 1992. It was like six. Uh, and she, it was the kind of thing where she lived with it for... What kind of cancer? It's called carcinoid. Oh, okay. So they're uh, neuroendocrine tumors and they secrete hormones, but they're also very slow growing. So you can cut them out. But they'll come back. Uh huh. Yeah, so. my, my father in law died of uh, islet cell pancreatic cancer, Ugh. which is the kind that killed Steve Jobs. Yeah. And that, unlike like typical pancreatic, which is quick, is also very slow growing. Yeah. You know. I I always wonder. I don't know. My my mother used to say like, please like let me have time to say goodbye. But her death was so prolonged and painful that it was kind of like careful what you wish for, I guess. Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've talked to so many people. I don't, I don't think that any which way is better. It just sucks, it sucks. all the way around. It's a tough disease, yeah. Yeah. especially at the end. You know, like, uh, he was able to live, my father-in-law was able to live pretty functionally for the last, like, I think he had it for like 12 years, something like that. Yeah. But then at the end, it just, you know, it, you yeah. decline and it's just brutal. Yeah. It happened really fast for my mom at the end too. I mean... Yeah, it's yeah. the worst disease. It's brutal. And it, it's a funny thing. Like, I, would, I don't know, maybe I'll write about this at some point, but you never, you don't know to expect how sort of gruesome it is because you don't see it represented anywhere no, in we our hide culture. our dead. We hide our dead in our Absolutely. culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, even like, oh, there's some movie I was watching. There's like a, a dying mom and she has cancer and she's like, quite Me. beautiful on her <laughs> She's wearing pearls. hospital bed. Yeah. Like really we're still doing this? Cause that is not what it looks like. Yeah. You need some, like you need to have like the, the makeup artists come in and yeah. make it real for people. Yeah. People don't want to see it. And they I think don't. it's actually, uh, it diminishes us. I think it's actually uh, healthy to contemplate death on a daily basis. And I think a lot of people would be like, well, that's fucking morbid. And I don't mean to like say you dwell on it, but at least once a day, I like to just pause and be like, this is all going very fast. Yeah. This is temporary. It helps me appreciate life more. Yeah. I wonder, because I, I do that too. And I, sometimes I feel like it gets in my way. It can't. But I, I mean, can't stop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess I could, I guess I might be death obsessed. You know, it's like one of the central themes of my life is loss and grief. Yeah. Because it's such a, it's such a hardcore reality. It's the ultimate reality. And you have all these people, um, that you're so attached to yeah. and eventually you have to say goodbye to all of it. Right. And like, I'm of the temperament where I would rather face that and really dive into it than like avoid it or pretend it's not going to happen. And then like when it actually does happen, like freak out and be like, what, you know, yeah, I no, have that's to, smart. I got to deal with things. That's smart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as much as I can. So, um, I'm interested in jello as uh, a product that was marketed to women, I guess may maybe still is, but especially like mid 20th century. Um, I'm thinking of those ads and that time period in American cool history, the way that things were, uh, arranged in terms of gender at that time. Um, 
socially, economically, politically, etc. Like you had this product that was marketed to women as like an easy dessert that they could whip up. It's low calorie. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. and so, uh, can you talk a little bit about why or like how you got to the place where you started to realize that this product carried with it all of this, um, subtext? Sure. Um, it sort of corresponds with some of my like process with writing the book. I mean, my mom, like I said, she was invested in her family history and we talked about this kind of stuff a lot. And we talked about Jell-O's origins. Um, but I, you know, it took me a long time to write this book and initially how long is long i mean it's all relative but uh five years okay i got you beat yeah uh, many do (laughs) um yeah so initially there wasn't that much jello in it but then i sort of started to see the ways in which if i was tracing my mother's experience and and my grandmother's experience as as women in a patriarchy and women Ill, women with illnesses in a patriarchy um jello actually provided a really interesting foil um in so much as as the advertising campaigns were really designed on masking things like death and illness and preserving this idea of um light, wholesome, happy, gelatinous, also like, <laughs> yes, gelatinous, translucent. And this, it's funny too, because jello is like gruesome in in terms of its origin. It's right. made from like hooves, right? Yes. Well, initially, um, yeah, just factory farm refuse. And now, now it's a very secret recipe, but, um, publicly acknowledged to be the boiled hides of cows and pigs. So they boil the, the skin and then skim the gelatin off the top. Have you ever, there's a YouTube video, like it's like animal, cause I'm a total animal rights person mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't eat animals and, uh, I get uh, like a lot of mailers, like emails and links. I follow things on Twitter that like upset me like every 20 minutes. Yeah. But uh, there was a video on YouTube about like how gel- you know gelatin is made, and it takes you through a factory, and you're just like, "This is nasty." Yeah, it's disgusting, actually. So now Jello is manufactured in Delaware, and the factory there is like kept under lock and key. Like journalists aren't allowed in. Like it's a very it's like the child secret. detention camps at the border. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know they're lo- they're under lock and key for a reason. They don't want you to see the horror. They don't want people to know how the sausage is made. And what I find interesting when it comes to food consciousness and I, I think everybody's got to make their own decision. I'm not dogmatic about it. I don't evangelize too, too much. I will advocate for animals a little bit. Like they suffer. You should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I know that people have deep, like emotional reasons and like family, cultural, historic, you know, I think there can be a case made for why you could do things differently. I don't want to get too rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, like I feel like there are people who really don't want to know, like they know, yeah. like they're smart enough to know, like this come, like there's a brutal process involved, but like, it's like, don't show it to me. I don't want to see it. And like, as we it's were saying so earlier, yeah. Like, as we were saying earlier about like death and wanting to kind of confront, like, I do want to see. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's weird to like not want the truth. 
right? Like, why would you, if it's like, why would you have like knowledge that it's an unpleasant truth and that there might be something to really consider there, but you'd be like, no, I just want to, I don't want to rock the boat. I think like culturally too, we tend to be really, um, cut off from our bodies. At least, you know, like so many people go to yoga, let's say, and they're like, oh, I like feel my body for the first time. But there's a lot of people who don't want to. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it makes sense to me that like you wouldn't want to know the origins of this thing that you're literally putting inside yourself. You're like taking its energy and whatever like antibiotics or hormones or garbage is it's infused with like you're taking that inside yourself so you just like (laughs) you're you're preaching to the choir i think a lot about that and i take what i eat like seriously like it seems so elemental yeah like put good things it's energy it's like that's the fuel for your body like um i would you know i i was a a huge fan of like anthony bourdain i watched every Mm -hmm. single hour of television the guy practically ever made I love the travel aspect. It's good to fall yeah. asleep too. Yeah. He's good company. He's got a good sense of humor. I did like to tease him though. And like, I didn't want to say all this. I, I had like an essay that I could have written in the aftermath of his passing. Uh, but I didn't write it because I didn't feel like it was the right time to like yeah. offer a counterpoint to his ethos or whatever. <laughs> but like as somebody who doesn't eat meat, he's obviously like the proudest meat eater ever. And like, he's always slagging vegetarians and stuff like that. And um, I, I took it in good humor. You know, I've heard it my whole life. Um, yeah, my family comes from the South. Like they think I'm crazy. Yeah. But Texas was hard for me. Too. Yeah. I was vegetarian at the time. I no longer am. Yeah. So, but like the point that I wanted to make or the thing that came to mind with regard to his show and like the way it presented itself, um, crystallized a little bit for me when I was like reading articles about him in the aftermath of his death, where he was like, you know, your body's not a temple it's a a carnival ride, like take the ride or you know what I'm saying? It's like a carnival, take the ride. And that's like a really fun thought. And it's easy to like get on board and be like, yeah. Yeah. But I think that, uh, that's part of the problem is that we have this attitude towards consumption. That's like anything goes, it's all in the name of fun. Mm -hmm. Like go live life and eat, eat as much as you can and do as much. And like, I don't actually think that's true. Like I actually, I differ. Yeah. <laughs> like I think, I think the body is kind of a temple and, and it should be treated, uh, with reverence and like, you should really think through what you're putting into it. And it shouldn't just be like this free for all. Am I like a stick in the mud? <laughs> no, I think like, it's funny cause there's so much, um, there's so much like cultural bad, like everybody, especially food. And I talk about this a lot in the book in terms of my life, my mother's life, collective female experience specifically, but just the collective experience is that like, um, there's so much, everybody comes to food with, with their own personal baggage. And like, you know, you, you go out to eat with someone or whatever, and there's just, you see it, like it's in like stark relief. Someone's like, oh, well, like, why didn't you order dessert? Or like, I'm going to order this. Or there's just like so much shame and emotion and emotion. And it's, I totally get it. Um, but wouldn't it be nice if it was just like, I'm going to do this cause this makes me feel good. And you're going to do that. Cause that makes you feel good. And like, that's that. that. I, you know, I cannot tell you how many times in my life when you're a vegetarian, like you, like as soon as you sit down to a, a meal at a, at a restaurant, it becomes like, you have to litigate it. Yeah. It's like, Oh, you're a vegetarian. Oh, and like I'm not, or why are you? And like, I'm like, 
can we just fucking eat? Yeah. I don't want to go over this. Like, do what you want to do. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, and I don't know. I, I, it gets exhausting. And then I feel like if people ask you questions and you start to give them an actual considered response, you start to sound like you're, um, debating or, or, or proselytizing. Right. And it's like, I, I was just going to eat. <laughs> but if, <laughs> if you ask me, I'm going to tell you, you know, so it's hard and it's really emotionally loaded. There's a lot of emotion tied to food. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my, it's interesting. My, my dad and my grandfather on his side, both worked in the food business. My grandfather was a butcher, uh, and oh. had, had four heart attacks. So you can start to see. Okay. And then, you know, had four heart attacks. Like every single one of his brothers like died basically in their sixties of heart attacks, yeah. which is part of what informed my decision to maybe not do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then my dad went on to like, you know, work in like corporate food business for his career. Interesting. Uh, so like there's that. And then, you know, here I am like podcasting and yeah. struggling down the street book. from cafe gratitude. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It's something that's been on my mind, uh, for pretty much my entire adult life. And I think too, what your book and your family history and, uh, I don't know my family history, but just more broadly too, is I, I really do think a lot about how we make our living. Like even if you make yeah. an incredible sum of money, I think this is part of what's so backwards in America and in the world, but particularly in America, it seems like and, and this sort of is tied to what I was saying about Bourdain is that I think if something makes a shit ton of money, it's automatically considered virtuous in this culture. It's like, oh, well, if it, if it sold for $70 million, it's awesome. Yeah. You're a winner. Yeah. And it's like, well, wait, but how did you make that money? Like, were you selling weapons? Like, you know, there are people who sell weapons in the world who make a fuck ton of money. There are people who run for profit prisons that put children in, you know what I'm like, we're seeing it right now. Like there are a lot of ways to make a living that aren't necessarily good for the world or for humanity or for animals, you know? Yeah. Like it, yeah, totally. And it's, and it's also like a fucked system because I think there are a lot of really good people who are just trying to make a living and you're caught up in it and you become complicit in it. And I think to a degree we're all complicit in, you know, in it as consumers. Absolutely. But it's something I think a lot about. It's like, how do you make a living in the world in a way that is righteous and, um, positive. And also like sort of on the flip side, but how do you resist punishing yourself? Because it's like, I think about this every day. It's like, I could feel bad about this, but there's like, there's only so many things that I can, I feel bad about like everything all the time, you know, like, oh, I'm going to drive here instead of walk or like, oh, I'm going to like, I don't know, stop at this store because it's convenient instead of this one. It's like, okay, like I have to preserve energy for other things. Yeah. Like, you can't be, you can't bat a thousand. Yeah. You know, you're going to like, like uh, the other day I was in here, I was recording. I was probably trying to like work on my quote unquote book, like recording myself. My dog starts barking. And I walked outside. I actually subsequently recorded about this for the book, but like dog starts barking, broke my concentration. I was like frustrated. And I walked outside, turned to my left. She was like barking at a bee on the patio. It's like very weird behavior, but these bees like land on the patio and she thinks they're like toys or something. (laughs) She's standing over it, barking at it. And I walked outside and I was like, you know, quiet. And I looked down and like in a split second, I just stepped on the bee. Oh, 
And then like, I stopped myself and I was like, that was fucking unnecessary. Yeah. Like, why did I, t- why did I just kill that poor bee? Like I just, in a flash, I just ended its life. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It, it bothered me a you lot. You could really reasonably <laughs> feel bad about that for the rest of the day or yeah. you could choose not to. <laughs> or you could just be like, it's a fucking bee. <laughs> Some people don't, you know, I was watching a documentary on Netflix just last night about, uh, a Vermont farmer. I'm a sucker for these kinds of things. Like, cause I have this ideal. So it's kind of like where right. you grew up, you know? Yeah. But like, okay. I've heard you talk about this before. Like I had a hard childhood in the rural, I know. isolated I know. space. Like I, there's a reason that I'm like a city girl. Yeah. But anyways, it's easy to idealize. Yeah, it I'm, is. But I'm glad I watched this uh, documentary because the guy is like, he's like filthy and he's like working so hard and he's like elderly. So it's or getting older. So it's yeah. like hard on his body to do all the things that you need to do to keep a farm working. But then he's like binding sheep, you know, like tying their legs together and then like shooting them in the head with an air gun. And I'm just like, Oh fuck that. Like, yeah, that's, that's hard. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, consideration of animal rights that goes sort of out the window on working f- farms. There's sort of like for necessity's sake, a lot of the time, like, I mean, at least, it's such a hard life. It's like, you just got to get through the day and you get desensitized. You do. It's the way you make your money. You're around sheep enough. I think they all just seem like disposable. Like yeah. They're just, you know, they're like bees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but you didn't grow up. Did you grow up farming? No. Um, so I had like an interesting experience in that, like my parents and I moved from Connecticut to rural New Hampshire. Um, to a house on a, a hill sort of isolated and you know, like comparative to a lot of the population of that town, like we were very privileged. Um, I went to school across the river in Vermont at a private school, but I rode on a working farm, uh, in Walpole with just town girls. Right. So I sort of like inhabited these two worlds and I was an outsider, especially at the farm. But I spent most of my time there. So we, we like showed cows for 4-H. We showed horses. There was just a ton of livestock and like a lot of work. Like I worked for my lessons two nights a week. Um, that sounds instructive, like a good education. It definitely formed me. And yeah, like it, it formed me. Like there are things that I do in my life now because of the, my barn chores. Like what? Like... Okay, this is a really crazy example, and it drives my husband crazy, and it's actually not efficient, but um, I can't just sort of do one thing in the kitchen at once. It's like if I'm cooking, then I need to also be like washing dishes while this thing's on the stove. Like it's like things need to get done is the general ethos of like working on a farm. Like things get to need to get done. The horses eat before you do. You don't go home until everything is done. So like shake your ass and, and move it along. Right. So I, I can be like very task oriented. So I'll have like the dishes going, the stove going. I'll be so like multitasking that like things get burned or like the water overflows or right. like whatever. <laughs> right. But in my mind, it's like, that's how you do it. You like take you gotta, care of business. You got to get it done. Yeah. I can respect that. Yeah. I'm, I'm like a very neat person. Me too. I, I like to clean. Me too. Obsessively. Like, yeah. And if I'm like, especially when I'm on my own with my kids, I like kind of take a weird pride in making sure that like everything stays neat, even though they're like tearing the house apart. I'm like cleaning as they go and I'm like starting the bath and I'm like following behind. Yeah. I mean like I'm such a fun dad. It's like vacuuming behind my baby. (laughs) Oh 
man. So, okay. So what did you learn? Or I guess, you know, you talked about your mom trying to write this book. Did you, did you get to a place where you felt like you had achieved something for the two of you? Is that too trite or is that? No, it sounds really, yeah, it sounds really sentimental, but I do feel that way. Yeah. Um, she knew I was writing the book. Um, for sure she knew. Um, but you know, I was finishing it as she died. And then I had an ending, but then she died, so I changed the ending. Sure. And it actually, like, worked, you know, it, it worked as if it was like, or supposed to happen that way. Um, but, yeah, she, I mean, she toiled on her memoir for decades and didn't get anywhere. And she would sort of, she'd, like, decide she'd, she'd come to the end and then she'd send out query letters and, like, try to get agents and go to, like book expos and that kind of stuff and just it was just rejection Mm. um which she took hard and then she would just sort of pull herself up and try to tell the story in a different way um so it was just the book her book was a constant presence in my childhood and adolescence and i mean she was writing up until she got sick for the last time have you read it yeah oh oh yes okay did she ask you to read it or did you read it after she died? No, uh, she asked me to read it multiple times. <laughs> like, mom, I'm seven. Yeah, basically, yes. Actually, I was, when I was in high school, I was like already writing a lot and I have like a copy of a draft that she gave me with like my line edits from when I was like 16. So it was, it was a thing. Yeah. And again, is it good? Do you I mean like, was there something there? Can it be salvaged? It's a, I mean, so I used, um, I used her, like the story that she wrote of her life and just her, in terms of like how old she was when she did this and what happened then to write Jello Girls. So the Jello Girls, it's part history, but then there's a, um, a pretty strong narrative component that t- traces my grandmother's life and then my mother's and then mine. Um, which I tried to write sort of as if it were a novel, although it's not. Um, so yeah, I, I used her book to guide me in that regard. I mean, I think it's really interesting, but I don't think other people it's, her problem is, is that it's like so packed full of every little detail that it, it just, it's unreadable in some, in some respects. Yeah. It's like. I think there are people I like, I always try to theorize about this. I've talked to so many gifted writers. It's, I think some, many writers who succeed seem to have like an innate ability to, uh, empathize with the reader, to anticipate and to understand sort of intuitively what the experience of their writing is like from the other side of the desk. You know what I'm saying? Like, absolutely. whereas I think, uh, other writers and I may be one of them are like too self-focused or something. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I've, I I don't know. I, like, I, my initial reaction to that is just like, oh, no. Like, I resist this idea that, like, to write is to be – or to write is so self-involved or so navel-gazing that, like, I, I don't know. I don't well, know. Not, it's not necessarily that. It's that – uh, you do. You are in communication. You're in, you're, yes. you're communicating to someone else when you're writing a book. And I think for some, some of us, you can lose sight of that or the writing 
just doesn't intuitively or, or not deeply enough, uh, does it consider what the experience will be like for the other person? Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like when you write, you have a singular person in mind that you're writing to? You know how people always say that? Yeah, no. I don't I, either. I don't. And I think the reason I've been doing like verbal and then transcription lately is because I think I feel most effective communicating uh, when I'm talking to a microphone. It's uh-huh. just me talking. Conversational. That's all I ever want. Yeah. That's all I ever want as a reader or as a writer. I just want to feel like somebody's talking to me. Uh, whereas there's a formality to the writing process that I feel like robs it of some energy or authenticity for me. Uh huh. Um, that's interesting. And I guess I, it's weird. You know, you stand in here and you do a monologue and you're talking into the microphone. You're all by yourself. I don't think of an audience or anything, but I guess I am talking to like, I'm talking to somebody. <laughs> Do you think it's like a fiction, nonfiction thing? I think so. I have, as a reader, much more interest in nonfiction. I, I think I said this on uh, on the show recently or in conversation with somebody. Like, I don't read for escape. Yeah. I read for solace and like instruction. Yes. And that is not necessarily how I always have been. I think in my twenties, I read for escape more. I was able to like access imaginative worlds more easily. I'm actually a little troubled by it. It like kind of makes me feel weird. Like, wow, I can't like escape into fantasy. Same Do you thing. feel bad when you escape? I don't know. Yeah. I think I feel like I, I feel like I can see the gears. It's a lot of like the reality hunger thing. Yeah. Uh, where the David Shields, yeah, you know, yeah. where it's like, I feel like I can see the gears. I sort of know what's coming. I feel mm-hmm. impatient. It's like, who are you? Like, that's, that's all I want to know is like, who are you and what happened? And like, okay. And I just want like, uh, I've been talking about this into the microphone for these uh, recording sessions where I'm like, for lack of a better word, like I want like nudity. Like I, I don't want any artifice. I don't want any, I want to know who you are and like what you're going through. And if you have something to teach me, great. Or if you have a personal story to tell that's like resonant or I don't know, like, but I also worry on a couple of fronts, a, that there's something that has atrophied me, um, that doesn't allow me to simply enjoy escape. And then B, I think there's also a part of it that's uh, harder to acknowledge or that can often go unacknowledged where it's like, yeah, I'm having a hard time accessing imaginative worlds. And it's like, I've also struggled to write fiction. I'm not great at it. And so I wonder if there's like some resentment in me where it's like, well, I don't, I, I, I can't read that stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And hmm. I guess finally I would say like, sometimes I can, but it's usually when I feel like it's really autobiographical fiction and I yeah. can at least like imagine that it's the person just like working through stuff in a thinly veiled fiction, you know? Yeah. I wonder about this a lot. Cause I like, I think it took, well, I feel like as a writer, I understood my like voice really early. Um, what is it? Well, do you know, can you, can you articulate what it is or is it just, no, it's just like me, me, writer, me, me writing. (laughs) Yeah. But like, I think because of that, I felt really like wedded to nonfiction as a form, um, memoir as a form. Uh, and I worry like, cause now I'm finishing a second book project and I want to, I want to write more, 
but I don't, I don't have another nonfiction project in me that I can see right now. That comes like from the inside out. Yeah. It's just too much. Like it's too harrowing. Yeah. But I worry that like, like, could I, would my voice extend across genre? Right. Or, you know, you could find some, if it's nonfiction, you find someone else's story to tell somehow. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it's like, I I just find myself struggling a lot with that too. And like, I, for some reason I just have this fantasy that there's going to be, I'm going to find some way to do it, some process and it's going to be a joy. Yeah. (laughs) I want it to be a joy, you know? Uh, but I was thinking like, wow, like if I could get the ratio right, cause it's a real, I think the real question about doing things in this way is the word count ratio. Hmm. Cause if you're talking mm-hmm. and then transcribing, I'm saying like, Oh, 200,000 words and then I'll stop and then I'll edit down to 50, but I might have to get like a million five words in that way and then edit down, you know, yeah, in order to get something good. But that might be where the joy is, is in the cutting. Maybe. I find cutting so fun. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I don't know. I, I think so too. I like, I can't wait to get to that point. Yeah. And to see if I have anything. Cause like, I haven't looked at any of it. That sounds kind of joyful. I mean, how joyful is writing generally anyways? Like, uh, right. I right now, um, I'm working at a co-working space, like around the corner for writers. It's amazing. It's called the hatchery. And, but like, I look around the room and I don't see a lot of like joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, I mean, I guess it should be hard. It's hard work. It's a struggle. You're kind of, uh, I don't know. You're, you're usually confronting difficult things and having to spend a lot of time with them. And it's, I think the process is just inherently difficult and you have to be comfortable with failure Yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. That's challenging for me. Have you ever considered quitting? No. Mm-mm. You've always wanted to do this? Um, well, so, okay. So I don't think I always wanted to be a writer per se. I mean, when I was a teenager, I was going to be a professional horsewoman. Um, Is that what it's called? No, equestrian a, a professional a horse trainer i was gonna be a horse trainer can you i meant to ask this earlier can you horse whisper um uh yeah like if, if there's <laughs> if there's a temperamental horse like if i take you out to the countryside and, and there's like a horse that like nobody can ride could you like talk it down no oh. i mean maybe i think first of all it's all about energy uh and confidence and, um, I, I could promise that I might stay in the saddle longer than other people, <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, it's also like horses have their own personalities. Um, you might really vibe well with a certain horse and not with others. So it makes me like, it makes me, uh, like you can't bullshit a horse. No, you can't. And sometimes like, like people, especially horses, because horses are subject to a lot of abuse. Um, but I've known some really troubled horses and they, they, you see their sort of essential nature, which is good and sweet and kind like people. Yeah. And then, you know, they lash out and when they lash out, they're really big and powerful and they can hurt you. Yeah. Have you been thrown? Yes. Yeah. I've fallen off horses. You ever injured? Nah, I sprained my ankle or my wrist once. 
But I mean, like you're in stirrups, you don't get like your foot caught and like you're getting dragged the around. Stirrups have um, a release on them, so they come off the horse with you. Oh, they do. If uh, if it comes to that. Okay, that's good to know. A lot of the time, you go over their head, like they buck and you go over the head. And just you roll. You know how to deal. I guess you just in- instinctively. <laughs> the last time, I don't even remember when I fell off the last time many years ago but like it is a sport for young bodies like i do not want to fall off now (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's incredible too like i was recently riding um out of the barn where my horse is and um you know people don't wear helmets like some people do but it's like especially in like the morgan world and i write about this in, in my next project but like it's like not considered cool which is crazy because you can fall off. You can be a great rider and a freak accident happens. You fall off and you're paraplegic. So I don't, I don't ride a helmet or I don't wear a helmet when I ride my bike around Los Angeles. Yeah, I, mean, I like, is that insane? I resist the bike helmet too, but yes, it is. It's so dumb. It's like, just put a helmet on, but I'm like, no, I don't. I didn't, I didn't. My argument is this. I didn't wear a helmet when I was six years old. I was I riding around. Yeah, <laughs> I was riding all over the place. I was going off ramps. Like I was fine. Yeah. And then the other thing is that uh, I feel like that misses that. That's the wrong argument to be having. The argument is that we need safe space for bikes. That we need better bike paths yeah. in the city. It's ridiculous that there aren't bikes everywhere. But like, also a helmet. I, I mean, I, I don't know. wear a helmet either. But like one time, I used to ride my bike in New York, and I hit a pothole. There were no cars around. It was late at night, but I went over the handlebars and like, I could have broken my head open. Like, yeah. Yeah. I just rode to, uh, I went to the Dodger game two nights ago and I was like, you know what? It was like rush hour. I was like, I'm going to ride my bike. I rode my bike all the way that's over there. far. It took me 20 minutes. Yeah. 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 And I, I think I was, mo- I was moving faster than the cars in traffic. I see that a lot. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, <laughs> you know what? This is, this is way more fun. It's healthier. And then I also, you can get kind of uh, self-righteous and I'm like, I feel like people, it's a good public service because people in LA need to see people on bikes more so that it gives them the idea like, oh, you can ride your bike here. It's a relatively flat city. The weather's perfect like pretty much every day. Yeah. There's just so many cars. Well, that's why we need more bikes. Yeah. And lanes. And like, like really good lanes with solid lines. That's just for bikes. New York is so good for that now. Yeah. Um, have you seen the scooters that you can rent? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm somewhat resistant, but I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's really darky. But... And, but it's also like you're kind of cruising on a sidewalk. Yeah. I feel like you could hurt somebody. Yeah. Those people need to be wearing helmets. Is what they need to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, you lived in New York? Yeah. I did my, um, undergrad at NYU and I lived in the city a little bit longer and then, so you've made the rounds. I made the rounds. Like New York, LA, Austin. You've ticked the boxes. Yeah. I, New York was a big draw for me. Um, it just always was. And I think at that point, I really wanted to actually get away from horse culture. I was really burned out. Um, so I moved to the city. Did you, didn't, my- you didn't bring your horse with you? <laughs> no. no, I, uh, at that point, it was just a real struggle to keep him because, you know, like, college who pays for a horse so he um my trainer at the time took on his expenses and leased him out which was really generous it was the only way i was able to keep him um and then 
I moved back to Connecticut for a short period to caretake my mom, and then I moved to California for an right. MFA at CalArts. Your MFA. Um, and you've got this next project. Is it under contract? No. Mm-mm. You're going to go out with it? Yeah. I'm trying to think. So, okay. So the business of books is still a mystery to me. <laughs> still. <laughs> you and me it both. It may always be. Um, but when I sold Jello Girls, they have like um, sort of like a writer first. First writer refusal. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe they'll like this one. Who's your agent? Mariah Spence. Okay. At? Janklo and Nesbitt. Okay. Uh, I like her. Yeah, everyone loves their agent. I always say that on this show. <laughs> They're your advocate. Why would you not love them? Like, they believe I, in you. I've heard, like, horror stories, but I think that people don't generally talk about them. Yeah. I think most, most writers, especially if you've sold a book, it's like, well, I love that person who yeah. sold my book. Thank you. Because <laughs> you write for so long, and you're like, I have to, like, beg people. Like, I still feel weird about this because it's like, for so long, I had to, like, beg and barter to get people to look at my work. Or like, you know, go, th- go through workshops in an MFA or I did my PhD at uh, the University of Houston and it's like, people are busy yeah. and they want to do their own stuff. So right. like, it's a, st- it's a big ask. Yeah. It's a big ask. Even when, you know, you have these great professors and you're like enrolled, they okay. still want to be writing their books. That's right. So anyways, like I spent so long begging people to read my work that now it's like, wait, somebody paid money for my book so that other people can buy it. Like that's crazy. To me. Right. Right. That's <laughs> insane. You know, one of the, one of the hard, sad truths of publishing a book though, too, is that like the thing comes out, it's beautifully bound and hardcover. It's you know, like major press. Like it's all yeah. the trappings and it's still hard to get friends and family to read it. Like oh, yeah. some will, but like a lot won't like you would be surprised or yeah. maybe you have a different situation, but like I've heard that from others. I said, that was certainly my experience. Like, I don't think maybe a small handful of my family and friends read it. Everybody yeah. else was like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> like, People don't, don't get shit. it for sure. I'm like, listen, this is like my equivalent to like you having a baby. Right, like right. you come to my book release <laughs> because like I came to your baby shower. That's or exactly right. Um, but that's funny because I'm kind of banking on some people not reading it. Like, please don't read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not all of you out there, but like certain family members it's like my dad read it and that was hard um really yeah okay ultimately okay but i think it was hard for both of us i mean i anticipated it being hard um just because there's some hard truths in the book very hard truths but uh, like i have a funny i mean my dad is a really weirdo character i will never listen to this um, but like I go into this a little bit in Jello Girls, but you know, I'm thinking about it a lot in relationship to my next project and just in, in terms of life in general. But like my dad's has been the kind of parent where like his love is, is not unconditional. It's conditional upon like me behaving a certain way and writing Jello Girls was me like not behaving in a way that he wanted me to behave. So that was a real that was a real reckoning and i asked him to read it and i pushed him to read it and it was hard when he did but ultimately like good i guess um i'm sure i think in the grand scheme it's good yeah yeah i mean it's i think it's actually common for parents especially if you're writing memoir especially if it touches on family but even if it's not even if it's just personal you know and it's like it's i think it's hard for a parent 
to see their kid turn themselves inside out and like share their suffering. And and I can, I can imagine that, but I also think that, uh, you, there's an intimacy that is gained. You get to learn about your child or about whoever, you know, whoever it is by reading them. And even if it's like emotionally difficult and uncomfortable to talk about, I bet like away from you and like in his own private time, he's like, I would bet he's very proud. I think he is. I think it's also good to like, at least for me to be like, (laughs) contrary to what you might believe, dad, like I am not an extension of you. Like this is, I've had this whole experience out here that like, I'm now forcing you to look at and like. I think there was some pleasure in that for me, but then also like his reaction was pretty painful, but I don't know. Um, Julie Bunton has a great essay about her mother's reaction to Marlena that like was really sort of like bolstered me as I went forward. Yeah. I mean, you have to make decisions creatively to share certain things that you know are going to implicate people that you're close to, or, you know, it might make people uncomfortable or might make you uncomfortable. Like when you're writing a memoir, like you sort of have to, um, be willing to go there and to show yourself in a variety of lights. Like, did you ever struggle with that or do you have a pretty easy time? Yeah, I struggled. Um, at least early on. But one thing I learned is that like, and I think we sort of touched on this earlier, but that like the writing that I love and the writing that I think carries the most sort of fire or heat is, is, the writing that's just not holding back mm-hmm. and it's going there. Um, and readers can tell when you are holding back. So right. it's like there were chapters in, in Jello girls, even like maybe right, right before it sold or whatever that I had to rewrite because it was like looking at them and it's like, yeah, this is good. This reads fine, but it's not, I know that I'm holding back and I don't want to like bear that really uncomfortable truth about myself and, it's got to go in. I want listeners to know that neither Allie nor I are holding back at all in this conversation. <laughs> it's no holds barred. But uh, you know what it makes me think about when you say that is, and I, I've said this a lot lately. I think it's probably an outgrowth of my own uh, struggles creatively or whatever, but it's easy to lie to yourself. Oh, yeah. On the page. And that's weird. You would think that it would be hard, but it's actually easy. You say like, oh, I was reading a draft and you could tell that I was holding, I could tell that I was holding back. It wasn't all there. And I guess like getting to a deeper truth, sometimes to have the insight and to see things clearly is part of the challenge. And then there's also just that like emotional withholding, like it's a little scary to go all in. It just feels like it's an uncomfortable feeling. To me, once I started to like really go all in, it became and I have a really obsessive personality and like a really addictive personality, but it came sort of like an addiction. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like I have always known that I was drawn to life writing because I was drawn to sort of confession. Um, and you had no religious upbringing. Mm-mm. No, I think I just, well, I think that I had an experience in sort of my late adolescence with how freeing it could be to, to speak truth. What, what was the experience? Well, it was complicated, but, um, you know, I was talking about my, my childhood with horses and all that stuff and it, it does connect somehow, but, um, 
I, I had a really gnarly eating disorder and also like just real like challenges with OCD. And I kept them very hidden from myself and especially from my dad. Um, was it bulimia or anorexia? Anorexia. Um, but, and then just like drug abuse and bullshit when I got to New York. Um, are you sober now? Uh, no, I drink sporadically, but really I'm, I'm pretty chill. Yeah. Um, but so, okay. So going into treatment for that and then like speaking truth. Yeah. And I actually, I recently read, um, the recovering by Leslie Jameson, Uh which was like speaking right to my soul. It was, I, I love that book, but, um, she's tremendously talented, amazing writer. Yeah. Amazing writer. Um, I think that like the freedom I felt once I actually just, and I write about this a lot in Jello Girls, but uh, when I actually just spoke of my experience and nothing horrible happened, in, in fact, quite the opposite, was so magical to me. Uh-huh. And I, I think that I, I chased that in my writing. And so I'll write these like really ugly truths about myself and I'll be like, oh, that feels so good. I've unburdened <laughs> myself on this poor reader. Well, but you know, but the other thing too, is I think it makes people feel less alone because most people don't articulate those things. Absolutely. And so when you have the courage to do so, it's like, it comes as a relief to people. Yeah. And I think too, when you can experience it in literature, you you know, there's a safety to that. You're you're kind of, you're separate, you know, like the person is experiencing it on their own time, you know, uh, according to their own whims in a book silently. Like, I don't know. I think maybe it gets a little bit trickier if you're in the room with people and there's like any kind of contentiousness, but in the context of like a recovery situation, uh, I've been into AA meetings. Like, uh, I shouldn't say meetings. I went to one meeting for book research years Uh ago. I thought I was going to write about an addict and I was like, I got to learn about this. And that uh, would seem so hard to me if you hadn't had a history of addiction. I, yeah. And I just like went in and I was floored. Yeah. Like it was very emotional. It was a very emotional experience. I was also like, I can't believe these people are alive. Like the stories they were telling, um, is harrowing, but also like there's a Kurt Vonnegut would write about AA and call it like the, the best church in America. Mm -hmm. I agree. Like, that's what I want. Like, it's like, it's like total honesty. It's not hierarchical. Everybody can have the mic. There's mentors and brotherhood and sisterhood and like a real human connection. And, uh, I think that the steps are like a very healthy, like if you've wronged somebody, you go make amends and like you do these things that are like difficult to do, but like ultimately lead to a much deeper and richer existence. Like, like as somebody who grew up Catholic and found it, found himself like, or found the experience wanting, is that the way to put it? Yeah, sure. Uh, it always just came apart as soon as I started to question it. Like it could never withstand my questioning. And not only that, it discouraged the questioning Yeah, and made me feel like wrong for having questions and all, you know, so I just found the whole thing like, ah, eh. like I think between AA and like grateful dead shows <laughs> and I'm not that's even kidding. That's not what I thought you were going to say, but, but okay, no, I get it. as polarities, like that's kind of what I want from church. Cause it felt authentic. Yeah. Like as fucked up as people were at a dead show, like there was music, people were having like come to Jesus moments that were real. And yeah. you could see it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was very messy. So I don't want to, like, uh, totally glamorize it or whatever. But, like, I think between those two things, it was sort of what I was searching for. And then I guess, to, like, to com- bring things full circle, because we were talking about this at the outset, is, like, uh, you get to a point where I'm like, you know what I just want to do? I just want to, like, sit down and be quiet. Yeah. 
and like focus on my breathing for a few minutes every day. Yeah. Like that's, if I could do that, like I would, that would be a good start. I do it. You know, I'm like, like that's my obsession, I guess. Meditation. Yeah. I got to do it. It's interesting. It's like, uh, I can say I, I rationalize it as like a form of hygiene. Like to not That's do That's a really great way to integrate it into your life. Yeah, just like consider doing like not doing it is like not brushing your teeth. You're like ew. Yeah, it's ew. Like you yeah. got to take care of that part of yourself. I um I feel like so many people have a resistance to incorporating meditation in. Like I do. It's hard to stop. That's the hard part. That really? I, I think, I think they're like, I feel an internal resistance, especially in evening meditation or afternoon, uh, because you're going, you know, your internal, yeah. like your, your mind chatter or, you know, the conversation that you're always having with yourself, like really ramps up over the course of a day. Cause you're taking in all this stimuli. Sure. I think like really early in the morning you get up or whenever you get up, you know, you probably have a better shot, um, of getting to the cushion or whatever, but. I just think that's the part of the human condition is like this internal momentum that you have. And like the first challenge is getting yourself to stop. And once you can do that and then stick with it a little bit, you know, it does, it does tend to get a little, you know, it gets easier, not always, but I don't know the hard, the hard part is just getting there to finding the time and like committing to stop and like putting your phone on airplane mode, Yeah, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. So uh, it's been great to meet you. Yeah, you I, too. I feel like I talk too much in this one. Oh, I don't know. Did I talk a lot? I feel like I talked a lot. You talked a lot. Yeah. I gave you some airtime. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much caffeine. I just got back from vacation. I'm like, it's been kind of a busy week, but it's, uh, it's great to meet you. Congrats on your book. Oh, I, I forgot to ask you two questions that I feel like I should ask sure. you. Sure. Uh, this jello fortune. Like, are you, are you good? Like, are you on, is Jell-O money still happening? You know, there's so many descendants of the Jell-O uh, fortune, unfortunately, as with many great. You've got like a little wedge of yeah. Jell-O. Yeah. And I like, I feel very grateful to have my, my very small <laughs> yeah. piece of Jell-O. Yeah. And then uh, tattoos. Oh, sure. You have, let me see your hand. Like whenever I see a visible tattoo on a guest, I think it's cool to ask people like about the history of their tattoos. So oh, gosh, can, can yeah. you describe your tattoos for uh, the people listening? These are the ones that are visible. <laughs> I have three on my left hand. Um, the first one, they're actually, yeah, they're three separate ones. They look like they're integrated. The first one I got when I was like 17 in the East Village. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, and I was, I'd actually been at a, um, retreat at the Kripalu center. Sure. And, yeah. And I Is had, that how it's pronounced? Yeah. I always called it Kripalu. But it's I've Kripalu. heard cripple you because the <laughs> yoga classes are so gnarly. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's Kripalu. I don't know. Is Whatever. that it? is it in Massachusetts? It's in Massachusetts. I don't remember where exactly. Like Western Mass. Western or... Mass. Very isolated. Um, it's actually kind of a funny story because I was really into, um, sort of like this certain like new age spirituality teachers, whatever. And I had convinced my mom, which had, ones, this woman's name, I'm going to blank on it. Like what was she teaching? Was she like was teaching. Or? No, no, it was, it was more practical than that. It was like sort of like healing modalities and how to help yourself think positively, basically. Sure. I'll, I'll, remember her name at some point now. Anyways, 
I'd convinced my mom, we had just sort of like reconciled. I was going through some healing stuff and I had convinced her to like come with me to this thing. And then I like freaked out because we were in the middle of nowhere and we left her. (laughs) (laughs) But I did get this sort of like ohm symbol from there and I traced it on my hand and took it back and like made my own design. So that's one. The second is my mother's signature, uh, which I got after she died. And then the third is this California wildflower that I got by this artist named Clay Gibson uh, a couple years ago. Okay. And I'm curious as to why you have your, cause I'm a person who I, I sort of like think I want a tattoo. I never could decide what to put on my body. My husband was like that until I he met me. And then he got some. Yeah. We've I, also like done stick and poke on each other. Where you just like make tattoos on each other. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's actually really, I, I found it to be, I think we both did like a very fun and connective experience. Okay. I, I don't think I could ever talk my wife into that. She would be like, you're not putting any fucking mark on my body. I'd screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I can see how that could be cool. And, uh, how do you decide first of all, what you want? I mean, I get your mom's signature. Yeah. That one makes sense. And then how do you decide like you're going to put them on your hand? <laughs> I wish that I had a really well considered answer <laughs> for this. The, the big one that's on my hand was actually kind of like, Ah, uh, it was not a well-considered decision. You got to have at least one tattoo that's not well-considered. Yeah. And you know, it was like not that long ago, but I was, my mom had died recently and I was like, I think I was like, like, to be honest, I mean, a lot of my grieving process has been this way, but like just sort of like grasping for control sure. and like tattoos, you know, as someone who's like, has a history of like wanting to control her body and like. Um, take ownership of it in a way like tattoos are a really easy way to do that. So I I went into clay and I knew that I wanted to work with him. My husband was getting a tattoo and I was like, yeah, just do something. (laughs) And I ended up with like a full glove. (laughs) Wow. And what does your husband have? How many does like, how many tattoos is he on at this point? Uh, Just, I think three or four. Okay. Cause they're addictive. They are. Like He's like, I want to get more. I'm like, I honestly, I cannot think of any more to get. I feel like if you get them on your, I think it's cool. If you're going to do your arms, you got to get a sleeve. Like yeah. You can't, I mean, maybe just one, but I think like sleeves look cool if you pick the right stuff. Yeah. I don't know if I could go for a full sleeve. I feel like guys get those more often. Yeah. In Austin, it's a big thing. Now I feel like it's, it's not, it's not cool anymore. I feel <laughs> automatically inferior creatively and artistically to anybody who has tattoos. I, That's awesome. I feel glad that I have, to, not that I want to make yeah. you feel unfair, but. <laughs> no, I think this, like, I look at somebody who has tattoos and I'm like, they're edgier than I am. They're like more creatively free and inspired. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like I automatically, like it's a subconscious thing. Yeah. I, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not like, yeah. I tend to look at people with tattoos and I'm like, oh. They've been through some shit. They know shit. That's cool. Yeah, I hope people look at me that way. <laughs> I think they, I think that I'm not alone. I think there are people who look at you know tattoos that way. I do remember when I got my first one. The guy who gave it to me was like very dubious about it. He was like, "Are you sure? Like, you're never gonna get a corporate job?" And I was like, "I'm never gonna get a corporate <laughs> job anyway." <laughs> Ashing yeah. your cigarette, <laughs> like a child, but. You know, he was right. I never had. Never have. Never wanted one. So. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes too, it can be good to do things like that to like enforce the decision. Or you know what I'm saying? Like, 
Yeah. It feels good to sort of like box yourself off from certain possibilities. Sure. Like, great. Bring it. Yeah. Let's make sure I hold myself to this. I will never work for a pharmaceutical <laughs> company and I am fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, do we cover a lot of stuff? I think so. All right. This was like a sprawling conversation. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to meet you. Congratulations. Thank you. Best of luck with the horse book. Thank you. Say hi to Ham for me. I will. All right. All right. Okay. That's Allie Rowbottom. Her book is called Jello Girls, available now from Little Brown. You can find her online at AllieRowbottom.com. She's on Facebook. Her Twitter handle is at Allie Rowbottom. She's on uh, Instagram. She's well represented on the internet. Go find her. Allie Rowbottom. The book, once again, is called Jello Girls. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the theme song music. That's the band Stereo Total with the, the uh, Other People podcast theme song music. Thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. What else? If you Oh, don't forget this show has its own app. Go get the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free wherever you get your apps. It's, a, it's, it's probably the best way to listen. It's one of the best ways to listen. It's in the top five. So, uh, yeah, it's summer. What else can I tell you? It's my birthday. I'm 43. I feel pretty good. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't make a big to-do about my birthday or anyone's birthday. I don't get it. I mean, I sort of get it with kids, but you know how I feel about special days days that are kind of uh you know hyped up or whatever i think every day is a special day what do you think about that that's my attitude uh, you know it's just it's hard for me i feel like a sense of uh performance anxiety you know, what am i supposed to do it's my birthday am i supposed to feel some certain way i'm glad to be alive I made it another year i'm 43 actuarially speaking i'm right in the middle i hope i get a full run trying hard to stay healthy I'm making podcasts at age 43. <laughs> Doing it. Living my best life. So, I appreciate you guys uh, listening to the program today. Thanks again to Ali Robottom for coming over here and talking to me. I will be back next week with another episode of this program. I'll have an author on the program. You know how it works, right? Hey, can you kids do me a favor and shut the fuck up? Thanks. Thanks.